0: You're listening to Reach MD, the channel for medical professionals. Hi, this is Dr. Ann Goldberg, President of the National Lipid Association, and I'd like to welcome you to Lipid Luminations, hosted by Dr. Larry Kaskell, presented by the National Lipid
1: Association. My guest today is Dr. Katherine McNeil, an associate professor of pediatrics and associate professor of internal medicine at the Texas A&M Health Science Center. She's also a member of the Division of Cardiology, co-director of the Women's Cardiovascular Health Clinic, and co-director of the Children's Cardiovascular Health Clinic at Scott & White in Temple, Texas. Dr. McNeil, welcome to the show. Thanks, Larry. I'd like to talk a little bit about children and cardiovascular disease risk factors, and it's very propitious that we're talking today because, as you know, the American Academy of Pediatrics just released new guidelines that some kids as young as 8 should receive statins if they have high LDL, along with obesity and hypertension. What was your feeling when this was released?
0: I was delighted to see those recommendations. I think that the response from the public has been... Somewhat worrisome, though, as if we're trying to promote the injudicious use of statin therapy in all children when this is certainly not the case of the American Academy of Pediatrics. And I think that in general, the American Academy of Pediatrics has taken a very conservative approach to the use of cholesterol-lowering medications in children and only wanting to see those medications used very judiciously in the highest-risk population.
1: Let's explore who is the highest risk population of kids.
0: Okay, so we have lots of data to draw upon. Perhaps one of the most important studies that I'm aware of is the pathological determinants of atherosclerosis in youth study. This was a study where they looked at autopsy specimens from the coronary arteries and from the abdominal aorta. In young people as early as age 15 up to age 35 who died of an accidental death, they're specifically looking at the association of preclinical atherosclerosis determined by autopsy with risk factors measured after death, those risk factors being cholesterol values, the presence of high blood pressure, which they assessed by the thickening of the renal arteries, and then known risk factors such as obesity and smoking.
1: Tell me a little of the data from the P-Day study.
0: The P-Day study actually was used to develop a risk scoring system, much like the Framingham risk score in adults. So from that data, we actually found that children who had a risk factor above around 15 to 16 points had significantly more atherosclerotic lesions than children who had lower risk scores. Now, the main way that you could have a high risk score was by having obesity. You got a lot of points for having obesity if you were a male. You also got a lot of points for having an elevated non-HDL cholesterol level. There were a modest number of points given for hypertension. There were points given for diabetes. Surprisingly, there were few points given for tobacco use, and quite possibly the author speculated that that was because the adverse effects of tobacco are more of a thrombotic risk factor. So if you don't have a lot of atherosclerotic lesions to begin with, tobacco use may not be as critical and certainly in the younger population they wouldn't have had very many pack years of smoking. So the metabolic syndrome which includes obesity and a dyslipidemia associated with obesity certainly would have contributed significantly to the increased prevalence of atherosclerotic lesions in the PDA study.
1: Catherine has anyone done any IMT studies in kids looking at seeing what their carotid arteries look like while they're alive?
0: Yes. There was a very large study that was done by the Wegman Group, which looked at the use of statin therapy in close to 200 children randomized to statin versus placebo, and they followed carotid intimal thickness. They showed that the children that were on the statin therapy over the course of treatment actually had an improvement in their intimal thickening, a decreased carotid IMT value, whereas those that were on the placebo had an increased INT level.
1: Let's say that I have a patient who's 12 years old and I diagnose the metabolic syndrome in them. What do I attack first?
0: That's a great question. You know, one of the things that I think that we have to appreciate in diagnosing the metabolic syndrome in children is first that there's no well-accepted agreement about what that diagnosis constitutes compared to the fairly good agreement that we have in adults. So in adults, I think it's fairly well-accepted that either the National Cholesterol Education Program values are the World Health Organization values seem to be well accepted and validated. In children, there hasn't been any consensus reached about how we define the metabolic syndrome. So to diagnose the metabolic syndrome in children is, first of all, a little bit problematic right now if you can't agree on the diagnosis criteria. Secondly, there was a very compelling study that was recently reported by Elizabeth Goodman and Stephen Daniels. Stephen Daniels was the lead author in this recent American Academy of Pediatrics publication. Goodman and Daniels actually show that there is significant instability of the diagnosis of metabolic syndrome during adolescence because of the dynamic changes that adolescents undergo as a result of normal growth and development. And that instability included both the gain and the loss of the metabolic syndrome diagnosis, such that the author suggested that the syndrome had reduced clinical utility in adolescents because of that.
1: If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Lipid Illuminations on ReachMD XM 157. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Caskell, and I'm talking with Dr. Catherine McNeil of Texas A&M Health Science Center in College Station, Texas. And we're talking about cardiovascular disease and children. Catherine, so if we can't really agree on a diagnosis, and if it changes with maturation and growth, it makes it very difficult to intervene.
0: Well, I think that's a good point. And I think that your question just a little while ago was an excellent lead-in to a possible alternative to identify the highest-risk children. If we could use some non-invasive markers of atherosclerosis, such as carotid IMT, or if we were to find a biomarker that was very predictive of cardiovascular risk, much as HSCRP is reported to be in adults, that might be the best way to identify the highest risk youth. Now, what I think would be incredibly good is if we could then relate those values to, the say, the Pday risk score, like we relate the Framingham risk score to a cardiovascular risk in adults. So either using a non-invasive marker like CIMT or using the PDA risk score to help us identify the highest risk children could be a possible option.
1: Dr. McNeil, are you aware of any outcome studies that have looked at statins in children?
0: Well, yes. As I mentioned, the, the Weakman study was probably the most well-cited and the largest study we have to date, but there have been multiple trials looking at the use of statins in children, not specifically children with a metabolic syndrome, but children with familial hypercholesterolemia. Now, that being said, I think that the point of the recent American Academy of Pediatrics paper was to point out that children with the metabolic syndrome who also have familial hypercholesterolemia where they have very significant elevations in cholesterol values are going to be at an increased risk. There's no doubt that that makes sense because we know from a lot of data that children with familial hypercholesterolemia have premature cardiovascular disease. So if we envelop That risk, with the risk of obesity, physical inactivity, low HDL, a tendency towards diabetes, hypertension, etc., there's no doubt in my mind that we are going to have even a much higher risk child. And so delaying treatment until they're much older really doesn't make sense to me.
1: It sounds like you're extrapolating, though, from familial hypercholesterolemia to just uh, garden-variety hypercholesterolemia. And That's where the slippery slope comes in.
0: But I think that the American Academy of Pediatrics is distinguishing those two categories. They're certainly not suggesting that we need to put children on statin therapy with very mild lipid abnormalities. The lipid abnormalities associated with metabolic syndrome really don't include necessarily a very elevated LDL cholesterol. In fact, that doesn't even comprise the diagnostic component of the metabolic syndrome, Uh, Recall that the dyslipidemia associated with metabolic syndrome is low HDL, hypertriglyceridemia, and particularly the LDL associated with small dense lipid particles. If you superimpose that atherogenic dyslipidemia on familial hypercholesterolemia, you certainly have a child that needs to be much more aggressively managed.
1: I'd like to look at this in a macro picture of our society and It seems like this problem of metabolic syndrome in children or obesity in children is not going to be solved by just putting them on more medication. It really seems that we have to attack it from a different point of view. Do you share that opinion?
0: I think that there has been a phenomenal amount written about that in the literature, both in the adult realm and the pediatric realm. There's no doubt by anyone that lifestyle modification is the place to begin the use of medications doesn't mean that we abandon lifestyle modification or lessen our intensity on emphasizing lifestyle modification. When I see patients in clinic, unfortunately, I have difficulty motivating their parents to implement the lifestyle modification at home. If we have difficulty motivating the parents to understand the health significance of obesity and physical inactivity, we certainly have even a much greater inability to get that point across to a teenager.
1: Have you been treating adolescents with statins? I mean, obviously the high-risk ones.
0: Sure. Scott and White has been participating in a very small American Heart Association study where we've actually looked at a variety of non-invasive markers associated with vascular injury and seeing how those markers might normalize in children with familial hypercholesterolemia with statin therapy versus simply diet alone. We hope to have that data forthcoming in the next year. That being said, because we have such a large percentage of obese children in our population in Central Texas, a lot of our children with markedly elevated cholesterol values that would qualify for this study also were obese, and many shared a lot of the components that one would associate with the metabolic syndrome.
1: And I guess my last question is, have there been any complications with uh, adolescent getting pregnant being on a statin?
0: That's a great question. I don't think that we need to be using these medications without much greater forethought in the pediatric population than we do in the adult population. We know that we can't use these medications in young women who are at risk of pregnancy, and certainly the teenage population, is not going to be the most careful in terms of their risk of pregnancy and attending to that risk in terms of being on statin therapy. The other component is, of course, compliance with any medication, whether it be oral contraceptives or statin therapy in young teenage girls.
1: Well, Dr. Catherine McNeil, it was a pleasure talking with you, and thanks for joining me.
0: Okay, thank you, Larry. Thank you for listening to Lipid Luminations, presented by the National Lipid Association. For more information, please visit www.lipid.org. ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals.